You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. Uh, I'm going to try to make the sermon more interactive as well so that way I can hear you a little bit better. Um, my name is Sarah New. I'm the community director here at Forefront New York City. All pronouns are okay with me. And um, we're in the middle of our sex positive series. We had a great sermon last Sunday with Mackenzie. Um, definitely check it out if you missed it. It's on unlearning purity culture. Um, today I'm going to take a little bit of a different approach. Um, like next Sunday, Jonathan is preaching on like the purity passages, for instance. And um, today I'm going to focus on a more positive, um, so to speak, um, approach to sexuality that we can find in Scripture. And probably the best example we can hear, we can see, know of this is the book Song of Songs. How many of you are not super familiar with it? Just to kind of get a sense of. Okay, cool. So the, it's, it's in the Hebrew Bible. Um, so it's right after Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. So that, it's placed in that section because it's seen as the wisdom literature, so to speak. It's kind of written uh, to edify and build the spirit, not so much to be historical or to give a bunch of laws. Um, and it's a kind of a strange book of the Bible because there's no mention of God in it, and it's a bunch of erotic love poems. I was hoping some of you would write Song of Songs in the meat and question today. Um, and just to give you kind of a sampling of what I'm talking about, I'll just read a couple of verses out loud. Um, you are as stately as a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its branches. So that's one verse, got, that's what we got going on. Let's move on to the next one. This is this time the female uh, narrator. Come, my beloved, let us go forth into the fields and see whether the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and over our doors are all choice fruits, new and old, which I have laid up for you, oh, my beloved. I really like fruits, but I don't think that's what she's talking about here in this passage. Um, and, and pomegranates are a symbol of life and fertility. Mandrakes are an aphrodisiac, and they're sort of called love apples. Um, so there's a very high chance that the two narrators in the Song of Songs, who are these men and women who are writing love poems back to one another, um, one, uh, they're not married. There's no indication that they're married. And two, it's a very high chance they're just having lots of sex, maybe in the open fields. Um, and they're just writing love points back to, to each other. They're not talking about God. And somehow, not only is this book included in the Bible, but it is the most commented on book um, throughout the Middle Ages out of all books in the Bible. St. Bernard of Clairvaux, he is um, 11th century Benedictine monk and, and, and a, a named doctor of the church. For those of you who are Catholic, that's a really high status. Um, he wrote 86 sermons just on the first two chapters of Song of Songs. Um, you can Google and read all of them. Uh, what's it? Rabbi Akiva in the second century has this to say about um, the Song of Songs. Um, all the scriptures are holy, but the song of songs is the holy of holies. So let's figure out what's going on here. So, uh, you know, with this sermon, I'm going to try to make it interactive. So I'm going to, we're going to read passages aloud, mostly from chapter one and chapter two. And then I want to hear your comments and questions. And those of you that would like to just shout them out. Um, just hear what's coming up for you, what emotions, what thoughts, what questions. 
Um, and I've done a little bit of pre-reading and pre-thinking, and I'm going to be mostly drawing my commentary from this book um, called Lamentations and the Song and Songs. Uh, it's by Harvey Cox and Stephanie Paulsell. So for those of you who are like, are sure making this up? Just Google it. Maybe they're making it up. Um, but they're professors at Harvard Divinity School, so I, I think it probably is all right. Um, and so with that in mind, um, we're going to dive into scriptures, and I'm going to give you a framework for how to make sense of the scriptures. Um, or not make sense, but how to read. Because that's something some people ask a lot. How do I read this? Where do I start? Uh, and you've heard us use this phrase a few times, Lectio Divina. And there are many versions of this, but it's probably most popularized through a 12th century monk, Guigo II. I always want to say Guido II. Um, <laughs> from Jersey, he gave us this four-runged, he's from France, four-runged ladder for how to start from scripture to contemplation. So first rung is reading, um, which sounds pretty basic, but he, he, it's really about focusing on the words. And he uses this analogy of taking a grape and putting it in your mouth. All right, just bear with me. The second rung is meditation, and that's where you're chewing the grape. You're kind of zeroing in on a particular word. You're thinking about what's coming up for you, the, any associations, any imaginations you might have. And the third rung is prayer, because in that process, as you're kind of sitting in that, sometimes emotions come up, desires come up, and that might be something you want to pray about and ask for. And that he calls that the extracting the flavor from the grape. And the last rung, you've already swallowed the grape, it's in your digestive system, but the sweetness of the grape still remains. And so you've kind of moved past the specific word you were contemplating and praying about, and you're just kind of sitting in the sweetness of that experience of prayer with God and on yourself. So we won't, unfortunately, have a chance to go through all four rungs for all the verses, um, but we'll probably just do the first couple of rungs. But I want to give you a framework for what you can do, because I do encourage you to come back to these verses and kind of meditate, chew the grape, so to speak, um, and go on. So let's start, and I think there's a recap slide of the four rungs by Guigo II. Um, so let's start with the first, first five verses. Let's read them aloud. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine, your anointing always all fragrant. Your name is perfume poured out, therefore the maidens love you. Draw me after you, let us make haste. So for reading, let's just reread the first two lines. You can read it by yourselves. And read a third time if necessary. And start kind of f focusing in on one word that maybe sticks out to you. Um, or maybe you're thinking about it as a whole. What, what, what's coming up for you? What thoughts, questions, or emotions? And I'll monitor the chat box as well to see what people are saying. Some questions to think about as you contemplate is why Song of Songs? Why not just song? Why let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth? Why not just kiss me? How, how do the words kind of change or kind of affect the meaning there? Thoughts from the peanut gallery over here. Perfume poured out. Okay, yes. Anything else? It's hyperbolic. This what inspired sixpence, not the richer. It's me. Oh. <laughs> Great question. Um, Robbie said it seems hyperbolic. Uh, Rachel says, um, is this what inspired Sixpence, None the Richers, Kiss Me? Which I also kind of thought, I heard that song first in a church, so I thought oh, it was yikes. like... <laughs> Anyhow, so I think in retrospect, it's probably a talent show. And in any case, um, all right, so from comments, let us make haste. 
yes, eroticizing, anointing oils. We're going to go through the rest of the passage together. Like I said, I'm just going to focus on the first two lines. And so to give you a bit of context, Solomon is a king who's very wise. Like a lot of people come from all around to hear his wisdom. He's also famous for poetry. So, you know, it's something to know. And he also had lots of wives and concubines and is presumably having a lot of sex with a lot of them. Um, and so although scholars probably agree that this is not written by Solomon or for Solomon, the, the time period doesn't quite match up with all that kind of stuff, the authors of this book want you to believe it is written by Solomon. So that's something to think about. Does that change the meaning? Second thing of Song of Songs, um, scholars also think that this is a way to indicate it is the Song of Songs, the greatest of greatest of songs, the best of bests. And so it's a way to give a high superlative, so to speak, to this song. Um, yes, more comments coming in, which is awesome. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about what the medieval commentators saw when they read these two lines, and then we'll go through the rest of the passage. Um, it's a bit strange. It might be a bit unsettling, um, and some of you already know this, but they read in not just these lines, but the whole book, an uh, allegorical metaphor for the relationship between God and God's people. So I'll repeat that again. They read this whole thing as an allegory between God and God's people. So the, the narrator, let him kiss me with a kiss of his mouth, that is Israel, or the church, so to speak, reaching out to God. Now that might sound a little strange, and it is strange, um, but I'll give you a concrete example. So St. Bernard, who I mentioned, and Teresa Avila, another famous mystic, um, they saw on the line, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. They saw that as a way to, an expression of desire from humanity for God to take on human flesh. Let God kiss me, so to speak, with the kisses of his mouth. And St. Bernard in particular, he writes, I think, three whole sermons on this line, starting with kissing Jesus' feet, then Jesus' hands, then Jesus' mouth, um, this whole thing, uh, very erotic. And the, uh, and the whole point, I think, is to say, he says, the kiss is the mediator between God and man. And so when we long for the kiss, we are longing for that mediator to come between us and God. And um, but this is not... An anomaly, actually, a lot of medieval contemplative literature is highly erotic and involves a lot of male monks talking about how they're female brides waiting for Jesus the bridegroom. So there's a lot of gender play also in them. Um, it's very fascinating. And, um, you know, even outside of the Christian tradition, Jews customarily, if Passover falls on the Sabbath day, they will read the Song of Songs. And he guesses why that might be the case. It's kind of like celebrating an anniversary. It is, it, it's a way to say God freed us from Israel, yes, because God's good and great, blah, 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 but also because God loves us. And God, and this is a way of remembering um, our first date, <laughs> uh, but you know, oh, what have you. So, so this might kind of open up a bunch of questions for people. Um, yeah, Sam has a comment, also this kiss as sharing of holy breath. They're, kissing, I would say, is much more culturally accepted also in this point in time. Um, in particular in time, remember Judas kissing Jesus on the cheek. It's a common way of greeting. And also many cultures today do it, just not so much in America. Um, between men, totally fine. But in any case, um, the, going through this might bring up some questions for you, which is like, so Sarah, which, which interpretation is correct? Is it between humans? Is it between God and humans? Like, which one is this? Um, and I, in times like this, I like to defer to something St. Augustine wrote, who said, 
Which harm does it do me if different meanings, which are nevertheless all true, can be gathered from these words? So, essentially it's kind of accepting a multiplicity of interpretations that so long as they all can be plausibly true and there's no harm done, why not? I just a pretty good, decent rule of thumb when it comes to interpreting scripture. Um, and in fact, if you think about it, even if you take a spiritual reading, an allegorical reading, um, the spiritual reading still heavily relies upon a physical reading, so to speak, because a spiritual and physical are interrelated. You cannot talk about the love of God to Israel, the church, if you, don't, if you cannot first accept and admire and respect the love between two people on earth, like one relies on the other. So with that in mind, let's go through the rest of the passage. Um, since you already put your comments there, I'm going to just give my comments. Um, you know, your love is better than wine. Your anointing was a fragrant. Your name is perfumed, poured out. To my mind, what I'm seeing is a lot of sensor, senses being tapped into. You have the smell of the perfume, the feeling of anointing oils. Um, you have the taste of wine. And each part is kind of singled out, the name, um, what have you. And the other thing I noticed, as, as Ken Brittany and Collins mentioned, draw me after you, let us make haste. And this woman it knows what she wants. She, she wants this man, and she is proactively initiating it and searching for it and asking for it. And um, it's a pretty good way of, it's like a, a way of elevating, I think, women's agency in, in sexual desire. But I think it's also similar to some prayers we pray when we say, ask God to draw close to us, when we ask God to not tarry, to not delay, for God to be near. Um, I remember singing a song when I was young, I think it was a Hillsong song, probably like, draw me close to you, never let me go. Um, and so, you know, now looking back, I kind of make fun of it, but now maybe I think there is a lot of scriptural basis to that kind of erotic eroticism. But this initiation of sexual activity or romantic activity, unfortunately the slide, Leslie, is at the very end, but in any case, I'll just read it out loud. Um, is a theme you see. So here in chapter three, you see it again. Upon, oh great, you have it. Upon my bed at night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. I will rise now and go about the city, in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. All right, let's, let's read and meditate on this passage. What words stick out to you? What emotions are coming out for you? What do you notice? Woman talking about her lover. Rejection. Yeah, that's, that's a big theme. <laughs> it, it is a theme, actually, in songs. Actually, that's kind of why Song of Songs is really uh, good, because it's not just about the highs of love. It's also about the lows of love. And in fact, it's, it's, uh, so she does find the guy eventually, but she gets beat up by the watchman of the city. And so there's some indication here that what they're doing is forbidden, potentially. Um, so. That sex, holy ghosting, yes, exactly. So I'm, I'm seeing, you know, this woman is sort of uh, tossing and turning at night, like, why is this guy texting me back? Uh, why, why did he ghost all of a sudden? And sometimes, you know, love is like that, and sometimes God is like that. Um, you know, sometimes we are searching for God, and the absence can be just devastating um, and disappointing, and it leaves you with questions. So this woman's very intriguing, right? Let's see what else we can, what else we can learn more about her. Um, let's move on to the next passage, uh, chapter 1, 5 through 6. 
I am black and beautiful, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has gazed on me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards. By my own vineyard, I have not kept. All right, here we go. <laughs> I heard a hey from Rachel on the last line, which we'll get into. Uh, any other reactions on this passage? What words kind of stick out to you? What things are, what emotions coming out? Imaginations, questions? Black and beautiful, for sure. And some translations have it, I am dark but lovely. Um, and so uh, this is the translation from the NRSV, which is the sort of more default uh, text for within academic settings, and uh, I, I'm choosing this translation. You can choose what translation you want, but I prefer this one. Okay, check the comments. Uh, still waiting for things to come through. Well, in any case, the uh, something that came to mind when I was reading thing, I am I'm black and beautiful, or if you think about the other one, I am dark but lovely. You see this connection between darkness and sun. Uh, and like, I, you know, I'm dark because I've been working in the vineyards and what have you. Um, and I've always, for those of you who grew up in sort of more East Asian cultures, or maybe just in general, um, there's always this fear of getting dark by the sun. You know, you always had to put the sunscreen. We always make fun of the Asian moms with like the visors that would block the entire face. Um, and when I was young, growing up in Malaysia, I, I sort of happened to be the darkest uh, in my family, and that will always be something some people would note when they come to visit our family. It's like, oh, Sarah's really dark. You know, like, uh, she Indonesian? And that would be like the joke, haha. Um, even a few years ago, someone's like, are you Chinese? You're darker than normal. Um, and it was just kind of a way of stating that I didn't belie, looked unusual. And the Indonesian comment, for those who are not familiar with, Southeast Asian regional politics, um, you know, Indonesia is sort of seen as a poor, darker country that supplies a lot of domestic help to Malaysia, including my family. Um, and so that was a comment, but when I read that comment, when that verse, I also thought of how in this church we've heard, uh, I've heard black women who are single in this church express um, insecurity and anxiety over maybe I'm single, or maybe uh, the, my skin color or my blackness affects how men perceive me, affects how people want to date me or be in relationship with me. So all these things are coming up as I'm reading this verse. And so it's very powerful then to see how this narrator is taking a source of stigma and a source of shame and turning it into a source of beauty and turning it into a source of confidence in who she is. Now the vineyards thing is interesting. I think some of you have sort of picked up on this. I think there's probably a double meaning to it um, because throughout the book, um, you know, feminist scholar Phyllis Tribble notes that the vineyard is often compared to the woman herself. And so it most likely refers to her body in a larger sense, not just like the actual vineyard she's tending. And so it implies that she's not a virgin. She's had sex before, and there's a little bit of shame associated with that. You know, my sexual boundaries have been breached, so to speak. Um, but, I mean, it's kind of profound if you just step back and think about it. The main narrator in the Song of Songs is a dark-skinned, unmarried woman who is a, not a virgin, and who is writing poems about how she wants to have sex with her lover. And this is in our scriptures. And you know, some of you have asked us, how can I find myself in the Bible? And this is a, a, a good, way of, good way of doing it. Um, so we've heard a lot. We've definitely uh, talked a little bit about, um, yes, reading comments now. Yes, it is, uh, the Bible is a very complicated uh, text. Uh, let's hear a little bit more about the dude. 
Okay, here we go. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. So he's talking about the woman. Your cheeks are comely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. So uh, we'll talk more about the mare, which is a female horse among Pharaoh's chariots, but I'm just going to give you a little bit more context. He goes on and praises each part of her body, how her lips distill nectar, how her cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate, how her two breasts are like two fawns leaping over hills, her belly is a heap of wheat encircled by lilies, her round thighs are like jewels, and how her flowing locks can hold a king captive in her tresses. So, for the sake of time, I'm just going to focus on the first line, the mare among chariots. Um, and uh, what's that about? So Marvin Pope, um, scholar at Yale, who wrote a commentary on Song of Songs, uh, said that a mare uh, among chariots is, might be a reference to a military strategy in which the opposing army would send a female horse in front of the other armies, you know, male horses around chariots, to confuse and arouse them. And so if we take that... Um, He's not just saying you're like a female horse among male horses. He's saying you confuse and excite and arouse me. I am not in control anymore. Like I'm a, I'm a horse, I'm a chariot, I have this military task. This female horse comes about and I, I lose sight of what I'm trying to do. And I think it speaks to, and um, Stephanie Paulsell writes this in her commentary, the ways in which sexual desire is a vulnerable thing. It, it renders us a feeling that we're not fully in control of our bodies. We're, it's, it's out of body. We're, we're like, who am I? How am I doing this again? Um, I can't believe I'm doing this. And I think in that, that loss of freedom implied in it, I think it's why historically the church has always been suspicious of it. Why, you know, Paul's like, you have to be in control of your bodies, you know, flee from sexual immorality. And a lot of that comes with the desire to control the body. And I think also why I think the church does see sexual desire as competition, as a threat. Because here is something else that promises to overwhelm you, promises to give you, to, wants you to surrender to this larger thing, like promises a kind of union. And so um, it's, it's, it's unsettling, but I think what Song of Songs is doing in this verse is saying that it's honest about it, but it's also celebrating it. It's also saying, yes, and it is holy. And I think that is the challenge of the Song of Songs more generally. The challenge is, I think it dares us to hold up our human experiences, even our sexual ones, and use them as a mirror by which to see God, to see ourselves, to take sort of the most intimate, you know, whole public experiences of our lives, our sexual kinks, pleasures, heartaches, um, disappointments, what happens in bedrooms or bathrooms or behind bushes, and it asks us to find God in them, to see if we can see divinity in them, to see if we can see our wrestling with God in them. And so, to be clear, I'm not necessarily asking you um, to imagine yourself making out with God or God to make out with you. Uh, I mean, if that works for you, um, you know, cool. Uh, it doesn't necessarily work for me. Um, what I think maybe I'm asking to do is to see, you know, in, let's say, the woman, female narrative, in her search for her lover and her disappointment not being able to find him, maybe there's a parallel there to our spiritual search for God, to our search for a meaning, for our disappointment when pain and suffering comes. Or maybe in, in the feeling of when we say, like, to someone, you know, you drive me crazy, this feeling that we're out of control, um, maybe we can see in that something about what it means to surrender to something larger to ourselves and adopt a posture of humility. 
Or maybe, as I think a professor once said, the two places people say, oh, God, the most are in the bedroom or in church. And <laughs> maybe in sort of moments of sexual climax or orgasm or, or union, so to speak, when we feel um, this, this way of being together with someone, maybe that speaks to us a little bit of what it means for God to be in us and us in God and us to be all in one another. Maybe that gives us a sense of how, maybe how the Trinity operates and functions. And this might sound like I'm making this up, but these are what medieval, this is definitely in the vein of what medieval commentators are asking us to explore. And they are all supposedly celibate and not having sex, but you know, this is maybe how they're sublimating it. Um, <laughs> You know, I'll conclude with this. So a Jewish sage once said that the Song of Songs is maybe called that because it's a song that God sings every day. So God wakes up, brushes God's teeth, and <laughs> sings a song to your toes. You know, or sings a song to your strong, how your arms are like gold. Um, it's one of the verses in there. And I think that might be a worthwhile morning meditation or exercise to go through these verses and meditate on them and chew the grapes, so to speak, um, and imagine God singing a poem to your body parts, um, to your name as perfume, um, to parts that you might want to hide or conceal. Because I think that, that ritual, the exercise, is really how the knowledge that we are loved far more than we think ourselves worthy can descend from the head to the heart, to our toes, to our feet, and to kind of permeate our bodies. Lastly, I don't want to lose sight of the fact, though, that the Song of Songs ultimately is historically interpreted as a collective relationship. Yes, between God and you in your bedroom, but it's also between God and God's people, Israel, the church, maybe all humanity. So we can think of God as delighting and uh, being in love with all of us, all humanity. And maybe that begs us, forces us to ask the question, do we live in a world where everyone is a source of delight, no matter what their skin color, without, you know, going in a sort of fetishizing direction, as I think Christina aptly mentioned. Um, this, do, we, do we live in a world where the systems of our world, our economic, political systems, treats everyone as um, a beautiful source of joy um, without um, you know, punishment, without uh, penalties? And so I think there are even political implications to what this song is about. Let's pray together. God, I thank you. Um, yet your scriptures are abundant and full of different resources and ways in which we can bring our human experiences to you, ways in which we can, you prompt us to seek the divine, to seek um, what is sacred in the most mundane and intimate details of our lives. God, I, I thank you that your scriptures model for us what it looks like to bring all of us into our faith, all of us into church without leaving anything behind. I pray that your spirit continue to move in people's hearts, that questions or desires that have come up will continue to germinate and take root and bud, and that, um, yeah, for a spirit of blessing upon all of us, that we may feel whole and full and no longer needing to hide in the shadows. In your name I pray. Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.